Please note, in this episode we will be discussing deaths caused by the dangers of crossing Morecambe Bay, which some listeners may find upsetting. What's now a scenic experience, those leisure walks across the bay has such a tragic history. This is 100 Years, 100 Objects, stories from the collections of Lancaster City Museums. I'm Rachel Roberts, the Collections Registrar for Lancaster City Museums, and today we'll be looking at the stories behind another object from our collections as we celebrate 100 years of our museums. Today's object is a painting that depicts one of the most unique and dangerous journeys that people took in this area. Although it seems like quite a peaceful scene, it's one with a turbulent background. Today's object is Market People Crossing Lancaster Sands by David Cox. The painting measures roughly 1 metre by 83 centimetres. The Lancaster Sands in the title refers to Morecambe Bay and the scene shows a trail of people disappearing off into a foggy horizon across the flat sands at low tide. A weak sun filters through the fog, and a hazy skyline of hills can just be made out, showing where the travellers are trying to reach. Some of the people are also coming back the other way, crisscrossing the bay. Most of the figures in the scene are small and hard to see, but a few groups in the foreground can be made out more clearly. The groups consist of men, women and children, most are also riding horses, and even a stagecoach can be seen. These are not lonely stragglers. There are dozens of people in the image forming an almost continuous caravan across the view. We spoke to Anthony Konieczny, a student studying film and creative writing at Lancaster University, and someone who's looked into the history of crossing the sands to find out more about this painting. It's a painting by David Cox, and it depicts a caravan of riders, carts, and what also appears to be a small coach. And behind them is a thick fog, sort of lends this painting a very unique atmosphere and renders it virtually impossible to geographically locate the painting, if not for the name. And I can speculate about the journey these people are undertaking. Bill Shannon, local historian, he says that people living in the northern part of Morecambe Bay were always looking south. This makes a lot of sense because farmers from the region would cart their bounty to Lancaster Market. Or in case of finesse and cart mill, for example, they would carry goods from Lancaster back home. And indeed, in 18th century, virtually all transport to and from Finesse happened over Morecambe Sands. Um, the residents from there would drive their cattle, their horses and their goods annually to reach southern markets, for example, in Lancaster. The route was extremely dangerous and many would lose their lives over the course of this journey. So why then would people decide to cross the sands? Well, the thing is, the alternative was a far longer journey through the mosses and the deep marsh located there. It was also infested with cattle lifters. If they were to choose to go through there, they were sure to lose a portion of their goods. So Sands offered a more drastic bargain. It was everything or nothing, but many were willing to take that risk. So who was the artist that created this painting? And was this the only view of Morecambe Bay that he created? 
It's a painting from 1839, created by David Cox, a landscape painter born in Birmingham in 1783. And he was typically a watercolorist, but he would later experiment with oil painting. He arrives in Lancashire in 1834 and creates this series of very striking portraits of the sand crossings. Next to Jim W. Turner, he is probably the most recognized painters who created a body of work that deals with, with this particular subject. In 1830s, that's the period where Cox would begin to sort of develop his own unique artistic identity. So this obviously coincides with his arrival in Lancashire. And this stems from his devoted relationship to two main subjects. One of them was going to Hayfield and the other one naturally is crossing the sands. And both of them are sort of emphatically atmospheric and they also would frequently fall prey to forgery. In this particular painting that we're looking at, we see many of the motifs that Cox would deal with across his career, such as mounted figures and trying to draw people against nature. People have been crossing the sands for thousands of years. We asked Anthony to give us an introduction to this massive history. This is often the case with those histories that date so far back. We don't know how much we don't know. But we do have some evidence that point to romance. For example, making passage across the sands, but there is not that much concrete information. There is a lot more about Robert the Bruce, for example, his army invading England in 1322. He used the sound routes in order to reach and later burn Lancaster. During the English Civil War, we had the Royalist army meet around heads in a battle on the sands. And we can certainly learn quite a lot from early maps. For example, a Goch map that basically omits the entirety of Morecambe Bay as we know it today, and instead it makes it look like a plain, which suggests that while we now sort of define coast by the high water mark, it was then determined by the lowest point. We can look at the Christopher Saxton map of 1577, and there we see three spots distinguished by the word passage. So in these, these early maps, sound routes are as prominent as a highway would be on today's map. The distance from Lancaster to Cartmel over sands is 50 miles, and this is compared to 29 miles inland. And a similar ratio exists between Cartmel and Ulverstone. And we have to remember that a few centuries ago, roads that exist today didn't. So you had to go as far north as Kendal in order to reach some of those towns. Levensbridge, for example, only appears as a viable route in the mid-1820s. So sunrides were cutting off miles and they were the conventional way to reach those southern markets, um, jobs and families and vice versa whenever people were making their way back home. Until 1780s, most travelers across the sands were going either on foot or, on, or horseback, but in 1780s, coaches started to appear. Some of them operated a bit like private taxis, while others offered a regular timetabled service. Diligences, or so-called dillies for three passengers, were the norm, but in 1785, a new mode of transport, those heavy coaches for 13 passengers, and heavy luggage would appear, but they were very susceptible to getting stuck in the sands, so lighter options tended to be preferable. All coaches were equipped 
with empty casks so as to resurface if they had to be abandoned, if they got stuck, and if they fell prey to, to the sea so that they could be recovered later. And the last sort of regular coach timetable that we know of appears in 1855, which correlates with the development of the railway across the northern edge of the bay, which essentially replaced cross sun routes as we knew it. Anyone who knows Morecambe Bay will know that it's famous for quicksands and fast-moving tides, as well as sandbanks which can form isolated islands surrounded by fast currents as the sea flows into the bay. So was crossing the sands this way dangerous? Uh, yes, uh, crossing the sands was, was wildly dangerous. They continue to be wildly unpredictable. And the time to cross is short. It begins five hours after high water, continues until about two and a half of the succeeding high water stage. For example, the former Queen's Guide to the Morecambe Bay, Cedric Robinson, he would say that tides come as fast as a galloping horse. And uh, there are days after heavy rains where these routes are completely inaccessible. They should be off limits. Dangers also include the lethal quicksands as well as fog that often made travelers wander away from the shore toward the incoming tide. Even something that appears as minor as, as wind blowing from the sea can deduct up to an hour from the already short time available to complete this crossing. It is said that those who cross the sands most frequently are the ones who are most afraid of them, because if you do happen to cross it once or twice, you may miss the, the perils that those most familiar with crossings are quite well acquainted with. There is a bit of a dissonance between the tragic accounts that relate to the sands and accounts from tourists and writers, such as Wordsworth. He, for instance, calls Sands a majestical plain, particularly around the late 18th century, when people began to sort of enthuse about the beauty of the crossings. That was sort of the rhetoric around the Sands. Andrew White, who compiled a chronological list of drownings in his booklet about sand crossings, he cites as many as 450 named victims on the sands. We must remember that there was no central record of deaths until 1837. And even in the case of a tragedy as recent as that of the Chinese cocklers in 2004, the details about it remain quite inconclusive. So we can only imagine how many deaths remain unaccounted for. If you were crossing the sands and wanted to lessen the danger to yourself, there was one person you could call on for help, the guide to the sands. Even today, with the development of GPS and advanced weather forecast, one should never cross the sands without an experienced guide. Until the dissolution, the guides were provided by the monasteries, but later they would be appointed by the Duchy of Lancaster. From 2012, this duty to appoint the Queen's Guide, who is the chief guide in the region, was transferred to the local organization Guide Over Sands Trust, who annually organized baywalks to raise funds for local charities. There is one designated at the Levin Sands and one at Kent Sands. Back in the days, there were obviously many more, more travelers trying to make the crossing. 
they tend to be local fishermen or shrimpers and they receive an annual salary of 15 pounds which obviously dates back to the traditional payroll when the post was first established a far more valuable form of compensation is that they receive a tight house as well and these guides have a very important job of monitoring the sands the bay before each day's passage Today they would go out on tractors and mark the path with laurel branches called brobs, uh, thrusting them into the sand. Then they meet travelers at river crossings and try to convey them safely across. And this particular method using brobs hasn't really changed much over the last couple of centuries. And surely with today's technology this mode may seem a little outdated, but it's all part of the today's crossing experience. It involves an element of performance that's been passed down in generations. And Cedric Robinson, who actually passed away quite recently, he's something of a local legend. How revered he is speaks to just how important this post is and continues to be. Across his 56-year tenure, he would help travel the likes of Victoria Wood, Prince Philip. He has a housing development and a beer named after him. And he's a recognized ambassador of the region as well. Before he left, Anthony told us some of the individual and often tragic stories that stood out to him during his research. There are three stories concerning the crossings I found particularly striking and they illuminate just how dangerous these routes were. Uh, so the first story is an account from 1769 and it's a story of an old fisherman who set out to travel across the sands with his two daughters in a cart as well as his wife accompanying them. The family wished to cover a seven-mile route, and no one in the village knew it quite as well as the old man. When they traveled around half of the way, a very thick fog would emerge, and they realized that the water was a lot deeper than they had anticipated. The man was quite puzzled, and he decided he'd walk a little way to find some mark that he might be familiar with. The women waited for him in vain. He would not respond to their calls. At last, the, the daughters pressed the mother to go on. She wouldn't quit her horse, though. The daughters made a very difficult decision to leave her behind. They gave themselves up to the guidance of the horses. Their mother did perish, and the body of their father was later found just around where he had left them. Though the daughters were brought to shore alive, but unable to speak of what happened to, on the sands for, well, for days. And the second story occurred in May of 1857, when 12 young men died after returning home from Kent's bank. They probably did drink a little before trying to cross. Because they had just completed service as farm laborers, this was the period when they would be allowed to see their families, their friends. What makes this story particularly chilling to me is that there are accounts of fishermen at uh, Silverdale who were stationed there at night and they would hear the happy merry voices of these men approaching and uh, they were then succeeded by the sons as they struggled against the unexpected tide uh, and not a single one of these men survived to reunite with with their family the third story takes us to 1792 and it tells a story of a man whose horse drowned upon crossing one of the Morecambe bay rivers and as the horse floated, the rider stuck to the dead animal. He held the horse's tail, and they were carried a long way inland first, but the man would fail to touch the bottom of the river, and the tide at some point would turn, 
and take them all the way back toward the main sea, several miles. He decided to plunge into the sea and he did miraculously feel the bottom. By some providence he had been placed on a sandbank where he could stand up to the chin and waited for the sea to retreat. He then managed to make his way back home. So at least on this occasion there is a happy ending. Uh, I guess it's just really amazing to ponder uh, that what's now a scenic experience those leisure walks across the bay has such a tragic history. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of 100 Years, 100 Objects. We hope you will listen to some of our other episodes where we discuss everything from politics to photography 